Lana Ulrich, in-house counsel at the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Today on our special Civil War and Reconstruction series, we examine the life of the remarkable Robert Smalls. In the midst of the Civil War, Smalls led a Confederate ship with more than a dozen other enslaved people to freedom. This extraordinary act was the first of many as Smalls went on to fight in the Union Army to lead one of the nation's first mass public transportation boycotts, to start a school for African-American children, and to eventually become one of the first African-American men elected to Congress, where he served five terms. Joining us today to discuss Robert Smalls is one of his descendants and a leading Civil War and Reconstruction historian. Michael Moore is the CEO and president of the International African-American Museum in Charleston, South Carolina, which is slated to open in 2020. He is also the great-great-grandson of Robert Smalls. Kate Mazur is an associate professor of history at Northwestern University, where she specializes in the study of Civil War and Reconstruction. With Greg Downs, she conducted the National Park theme study on Reconstruction. Kate and Michael, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's great to be here. Good to be here. Thank you. So, Michael, you are the great-great-grandson of Robert Smalls. Can you start us off by telling us a little bit about your great-great-grandfather. Tell us about his early life. Where did he grow up? And where did he get what I think you've referred to as his quote-unquote moxie from? Well, first, um, thanks for the invitation. It's great to be with you. And I have to correct the record. Um, I am not a historian. Uh, I live in the world of history. I'm building a museum right now. Um, I am the son of an African-American studies professor, but I am not one myself. So um, so I can tell you lots of stuff about history. A lot of it around Robert Smalls is um, has been sort of passed down to me from the, the generations and um, and of course, the, the, the reading that I've done. But Robert was born um, uh, in 1839 in Beaufort, South Carolina, and um, he was born the son of a domestic um, who worked for the McKee family in Beaufort. Um, and to make a long story short, he ended up um, in Charleston before the Civil War, being hired out for his work, um, sending his wages back to his master, and was attracted to the water and um, ended up becoming a like a Steve Dorr, a, a laborer, then ended up uh, as a pilot on a ship that once the Civil War broke out was taken over by the Confederate Army. And so um, by all accounts, Robert was someone who had freedom on his mind. We know that he had negotiated uh, with his wife's master to try to buy her freedom and the freedom of uh, their children. Um, but an opportunity arose. Uh, he noticed that the Confederate crew of the boat that it was on, the planter, that they would sometimes leave in the evening not to come back until the next day. He also knew that there was a federal blockade outside the mouth of the harbor, Charleston Harbor, and that if he could get there, he would be free. And so he concocted a plan, and on the wee early morning hours of May 13th, 1862, he executed it. He got his family 
and uh, the crew and their family. And he donned the top hat and the long overcoat that the Confederate captain would usually wear. And uh, in the early morning darkness and at distance, um, he was able to sail past the five or so forts in the harbor. He, Because he was the pilot of the boat, he knew the various passcodes that he executed with the ship's whistle, and uh, he made it to freedom. So um, a lot more detail in and around that, but that was at least the start of the story. Great. Well, Kate, can you fill us in a little bit more about the context of this amazing escape? You know, I think the year is around 1862. He's in South Carolina, and the Civil War is still going on. What is, what's the context of, of when this is occurring? Well, it's so, first, yeah, thank you for having me here. And it's so really wonderful and amazing to hear Michael recount that story. Um, what it makes me think about, actually, the, the way I would, just, there are a lot of different contexts for uh, how to describe it. But one is just the, the reality that... Um, all across the South, or even what you might call the slaveholding states in 1861, wherever the United States forces went, wherever the army went, wherever the Navy went, enslaved people tried to uh, make their escape. They <clears throat> used and imagined the presence of U.S. forces as a destabilizing um, uh, force in the South, and they were able to, um, and as Michael suggested, I mean, people had been thinking in different ways about freedom for forever, right? But now is a moment when if the uh, U.S. forces are near you, you may be able to figure out a way to get away and and get yourself into um, into the union lines, into a place where you might be able to be safe from uh, recapture by your uh, owner. And so Robert Smalls's escape is, you know, maybe the most famous of this kind of escape in all of the Civil War. And he soon um, went to the North. He went on a speaking tour and, you know, was immediately, you know, gained notoriety. The ship was incredibly valuable. It, it then became a ship, at, you know, in the United States Naval Forces. But in a way, his story represents the stories of, you know, really thousands of people who from the very beginning of the war in 1861 um, took advantage of the destabilization in that moment and, um, and, and escaped from slavery. So, Michael, as Kate explained, after Smalls delivered the ship to the Union Army, it was extremely valuable. And he then turned around to join the Union Army and even convinced, I think it was, I think he and, and perhaps even Frederick Douglass helped to convince President Lincoln to begin enlisting African-American soldiers as well. Can you tell us a little bit about his military career and how he continued to fight in the war? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that uh, sort of as a descendant, I am most proud about Robert in his life and, and his career is the fact that he, you know, like many, he dreamed of freedom. He dreamed of a lot of things, but in a rare way, he had the audacity and the ability and the the circumstances to take advantage, to actually go after and achieve those things. And so, um, you know, he did deliver the planter to the union as a result of delivering the ship. He got a reward. He didn't get what the law prescribed. I guess 
Congress couldn't see fit to give a formerly enslaved man that kind of money. So, you know, he could have remained up north and lived a very comfortable life of a, you know, Civil War hero. He was received up and down the East Coast from, you know, Philadelphia, New York, Boston with parades, and it, it was a big deal. But, you know, Robert wanted freedom for himself. He did what it took to extend that to his family. And then he even further wanted to fight for others. And so he came back into the crucible of the Civil War, came back to Charleston and ended up uh, eventually becoming the captain of the ship that was the vessel, the vehicle of his freedom, the the planter. He became the first African-American to command a United States naval vessel um, and, uh, you know, fought, I believe, in 17 or 18 battles. There are a number of stories about him, um, you know, literally facing down death and acting with great courage and, uh, um, you know, maneuvering the vessel to safety. There's one story, the, the, the incident that actually got him named captain. Uh, the, the planter was in battle. It was taking heavy um, cannon hits and the uh, union captain actually lost his nerve as a result of what he thought was his impending death and went and hid underneath the decks. And Robert quickly, you know, jumped in and, and maneuvered the boat to safety. And, uh, and so, you know, he, he, uh, he was a valuable resource in addition to the planter being full of armaments and, um, you know, cannons and, and the like when he delivered the boat, perhaps the most important uh, asset for the Union was the intelligence, the the sort of Confederate intelligence that Robert had about various plans and the like that he was able to deliver. And uh, so he was he was a, a very active part of, uh, of, of the military there in, in Charleston Harbor and the Low Country. Wow, that's incredible. Kate, so as Michael said, you know, Smalls exhibited so much courage fighting for for the Union Army and in battle, and was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how just completely striking it was that he, how he went from being enslaved to, you know, as, you know, I've read accounts of this escape where the Union was seeing the ship come and, and, you know, formerly enslaved people who escaped to the Union side were often considered contraband to be considered like that and then to go and turn around and actually fight as a soldier and become a captain. Was this, were were there other stories of this as well? And can you tell us a little bit about the role of African-American troops in the Union Army and how significant that was? Well, yeah. So the the story, again, we can think of Smalls' story and it is truly, I mean, it's a, it's, amazing and, and and unique in a lot of different ways. And we'll get to his political career and um, his prominence in national politics and his the longevity of his career. So in many respects, Smalls is a really um, unique figure. On the other hand, his story represents the kinds of stories that were incredibly common. And when you sort of describe the idea of beginning, you know, in slavery, um, escaping from slavery, the 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 uh, policy of the United States is not clear on the question of whether, um, you know, are these armies going to be agents of emancipation and the abolition of slavery, or was the Lincoln administration going to try to hold off on that kind of revolutionary uh, aspect of the war and try to keep slavery um, contained and really just try to bring the nation back together again? 
Um, you know, that transition uh, by that happens in the course of 1861 and 1862, that's really kind of represented by the Emancipation Proclamation, which Lincoln issued on um, January 1st, 1863, is it was an amazing transition for the country to go through. And so the story of someone going from slavery to a kind of uh, liminal or marginal possible freedom to becoming a soldier in the United States Army and helping to win the war and also the army itself becoming an agent of uh, abolition, people who lived through that kind of couldn't believe what they were seeing. And, and that was kind of everyone, whether you were, uh, you know, in the North, in the South, whether you were enslaved uh, or uh, white people, black people, everyone sort of were amazed that this was actually what was transpiring after, you know, many decades of uh, Americans fighting over the future of slavery, uh, many people thinking that the slave power could never be vanquished in the United States. And of course, many African-Americans, um, Southern African-Americans kind of trying to get free or make the, you know, whatever lives they could in slavery and Northern African Americans in a very organized way, um, pushing for emancipation. But, but the speed with which, um, this kind of transformation happened from the beginning of the civil war to the beginning of 1863 was really remarkable. Um, so that by the beginning of 1863, the emancipation proclamation, not only <clears throat> declared, um, that slaves living in um, seceded Confederate territories, with the, a few exceptions of places that were already occupied by the Union, um, would be free, but also providing officially providing for the enlistment of uh, African-American men as soldiers um, was really remarkable. And it was at that point that um, the occupying armies uh, in the, the U.S. forces then in the South began to um, overtly and very in a very massive scale recruit um, enslaved people off plantations kind of say you know if you come here and if you uh, sign up with us you we will guarantee uh, your freedom and so this is a you know huge moment in the war great and so Michael as Kate mentioned Robert Smalls his amazing career didn't end with the war after the war he entered politics. Do you have any insight what led him to wanting to pursue a political career? Well, I think in particular among his peers in the Beaufort area where he was from and, and you know, in other parts of the country, I mean, he was really hailed as a hero. And so, you know, thinking about Reconstruction when for the first time, you know, African-Americans were looking to each other to who would step up and take these political positions to represent them again for the very, very first time. And so I think Robert was likely a natural um, person to um, for folks to look at and for him to sort of step forward. He, you know, in so many ways um, was able to envision things about his life, about his community, about, you know, his country that um, he wanted to have an impact on and, and sort of stepped in. Just one quick example. Uh, he first was elected to both houses of the South Carolina legislature, to the House and to the Senate. And when he was in that body, he wrote legislation to create the first free compulsory statewide public school system in the country. And I think that comes, that came from the fact that he was really, it, it, it vexed him, it really bothered him that he could not legally learn to read and write. 
um, as an enslaved person. And he lived around um, the, the children, the grandchildren of his master and would see them going to school and learning to read and write. And, and it just, you know, was, was a big problem for him. And so one of the first things he did when he got the reward money for delivering the planter, he hired tutors. He hired one tutor, as the story goes, that, that they met at, I don't know, five, six o'clock in the morning and then another in the evening to teach him how to read and write. And then from there, again, it wasn't enough just for him to do that. He obviously wanted to extend those privileges, that opportunity to his children. And my great-grandmother, Elizabeth, for example, in the 1870s was sent up to a boarding school in New England, um, probably the best school that he could find that would accept a young African-American woman in those days. Um, and and so then his his once that was, he, he achieved that, he you know, sort of directed his attention to how can we create education and, and deliver educational opportunity for all. And so while there were public schools throughout the country, for the most part, as I understand it, they were, you know, designed for poor folks. Um, and so he created, you know, in South Carolina, what became the first uh, statewide public school system for all without regard to race, without regard to income. And um, so, you know, I think politics was a natural way that he could, uh, bring to life the visions that he had for himself, for his family, and for his community. That's amazing. Wow. Kate, can you continue discussing Robert Smalls's career serving in the legislature? And, and he also served or participated in the South Carolina Constitutional Convention. Tell us a little bit about that convention. Why were the Southern states holding these constitutional conventions at the time? And what was his role in it? Well, it was, I would say it was a tremendously exciting time to be um, an African-American person who was interested in politics in the first place. Um, and um, certainly to be a Republican, because this was uh, the time when the Republican Party in the South was really getting off the ground. Um, so what happened uh, in, in Washington, D.C. was that <clears throat> after, uh, and, and many people will sort of know the basic outlines of this story, but um, there's a big debate going on uh, in Washington between Congress, the Republican-dominated Congress, and uh, the president, who was Andrew Johnson for most of the time that we're talking about. Uh, Andrew Johnson, of course, was Lincoln's vice president and became president when Lincoln was assassinated. Um, and Johnson and the Republicans in Congress increasingly during the course of 1865 and 1866 uh, went their separate ways. So uh, Johnson wanted control over Reconstruction policy, and he also had a vision of um, a kind of restored white South in which um, White Southerners had a lot of say over uh, how their states would be organized after the Civil War. It wouldn't be very hard for them to be readmitted. Certainly, African Americans would not um, have to be permitted to vote. Uh, he At first, it appeared that Johnson kind of had it in for very wealthy white Southerners, the kind of plantation class, uh, but he quickly made it clear that he was willing to pardon those folks as well. Um, and so by the end of 1865 and going into 1866, the Republicans in Congress were really rejecting the president's policy and trying to pass legislation that would take re Reconstruction policy in a different direction. Um, but after the midterm elections in 1866, when Northern voters really voted in favor of Congress's ideas rather than the president's ideas, uh, Congress took a, a new and more kind of dramatic approach. And that was to say, you know what? 
we're going to need to reorganize the southern states completely. So in the spring of 1867, Congress passed the first Reconstruction Acts, which were designed to reorganize the southern states. And most importantly, um, to allow to to insist that any new states that were going to rejoin the union uh, needed to ha- allow African-American men to vote on the same terms as white uh, men voted. And so the um, Congress put Uh, the former Confederate states, except Tennessee, under military rule and said, you need to uh, have new constitutional conventions, create new constitutions in which uh, all men will be enfranchised on equal terms. And this is the kind of dramatic measure that led to massive voter registration campaign in the spring and summer of 1867 um, and fall of 1867 across the former Confederacy. Um, suddenly, African American communities were um, talking about uh, joint, becoming Republicans, about who they were going to, how they were going to register to vote, for whom they were going to vote, and the first elections in which Black men voted in the South um, were usually in 1867 and were uh, referendums on sending who each community was going to send as a delegate to this new constitutional convention. So in South Carolina. The Constitutional Convention uh, met in uh, 1868 in Charleston, and the majority of the delegates to that convention were African-American. And in a way, that's completely unsurprising uh, since the majority of the state at that time was African-American. And their job, the, the delegates to that convention's job, was to create a new constitution for the state. And um, the South Carolina State Constitution of 1868 is a really uh, exciting and interesting document. It begins with uh, a kind of bill of rights that says that all people are entitled to um, the exact same rights. Um, and it also says that slavery is abolished forever in the state. Um, and then it has a, a right of suffrage clause that says every male citizen of the United States of the age of 21 years and upwards, not laboring under the disabilities named in this constitution without distinction of race, color, or former condition who's a resident of the state and so on and so forth, she'll be allowed to vote. And so this is a really um, dramatic example, but a, but in some ways, again, a very representative example of the kinds of changes that were taking place in the South um, during Reconstruction. And I'll add that um, a lot of people are more familiar with the Fifth Amendment, which, uh, sure. Um, People are generally more familiar with the 15th Amendment as the constitutional amendment that promised there could be no discrimination in voting rights based on race. But black men began to vote in the South well before the 15th Amendment as a result of this um, congressional policy. So it's before the 15th Amendment. um, These states are passing constitutions um, and having this kind of transformed political culture. And in that context, being an African-American politician, being someone who's interested in public life and, you know, wants to play a role in this transformation, um, you have remarkable opportunities, particularly in a place like South Carolina, which has a black majority. Interesting. So, Michael, as Kate's been telling us about the about the 1868 South Carolina Convention, where Robert Smalls is a delegate, he... I think in this convention was advocating for, as you mentioned, the system of compulsory public education and also universal male suffrage and political, racial and legal equality. Yet not, you know, less than 30 years later, 
South Carolina has a second constitutional convention in which the seems like the progress that was made has been undone, and they roll back many of the rights that were granted in that constitutional convention. Do you know uh, what happened in South Carolina at the time? Why was there a second convention, and why did it seek to repeal a lot of the achievements that had been made? Well, to be honest, that's that's probably a question better suited to Kate, uh, you know, and and she will be able to offer far more details and and sort of nuance to it. But, you know, essentially, um, you know, as a result of a political compromise in Washington, essentially Reconstruction died um, and the federal troops were withdrawn and very quickly Jim Crow uh, reared its its pernicious, ugly head. And, um, you know, it was a different, it was a completely different world. I mean, the whole period of reconstruction really is, is amazing. It's one, one of the most under, um, sort of told stories, I think in American history, but there's such great, you know, there's just such great stuff on the one hand in, in one day, um, you know, people of African descent, enslaved people are considered less than human. They're considered, you know, chattel. They're considered akin to a beast of burden to a, you know, a, a donkey or, you know, or a horse. And yet the next day, almost literally, you know, they are in the leadership in, you know, these states and, and um, taking positions in Washington. And then almost as quickly, uh, that period is over and, you know, sort of white supremacy and, and all that that entailed, you know, kind of was was firmly re-entrenched. So it's a it's a real, um, you know, interesting, I think, historical period and one that, in my view, deserves more attention like like this. But but again, Kate will be able to run circles around me on this one. Sure. Kate, can you uh, jump in here? And I just want to note, too, that Robert Smalls was was also a delegate at the Second Constitutional Convention. And after they passed all of these various articles, he declined to sign that constitution and he was excused from doing so. So, Kate, please fill us in about what was going on. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Michael gave a great overview kind of outline. And, and I think one of the things that's interesting and that Robert Smalls's life helps us appreciate is... Um, that the that the road from let's say uh, the abolition of slavery and the coming of um, voting rights and kind of political equality for African Americans the road from that until the 1890s and and kind of what we think of as the the era of Jim Crow was a was a complicated and convoluted and also extremely violent um, one and so. One of the things is, and, and Smalls, because he remained in politics for that whole period virtually, um, he his life helps us see that. So when um, I was thinking about, you know, well, what did Robert Smalls really, uh, what did he stand for? What did he continue to do during those uh, terms that he was in Congress? And one of the things that's interesting was he was in the United States Congress during the 1860, uh, excuse me, 1876 election, the contested 1876 election and the crisis that ensued after it in 1877. And um, South Carolina, of course, was one of the states whose election um, was contested that year. And so it was one of the states that uh, where the election result was going to have an impact on who ended up becoming president. Um, but 
part of the reason that for a long time nobody could say who had won the election um, in South Carolina was because there was so much violence um, and terrorism and corruption in the 1876 election in South Carolina. And so Smalls used his bully pulpit in the, in the United States Congress to talk about that in 1877 as um, people continued to debate how this crazy contested election was going to be resolved. Um, and he talked in Congress about the suppression of African-Americans' votes in that election. He talked about, um, and this is just an example from his speech, um, the various methods of intimidation resorted to by the Democrats were as follows, the killing of colored men, making threats of personal violence, sending threatening letters, coffins, bullets, etc., by riding armed through the country by day and night, by firing into the houses of Republicans, by breaking up Republican mass meetings, by forming armed bodies dressed in red shirts called rifle clubs, by discharging employees who refused to promise to vote for the Democratic ticket. All of these various measures of intimidation were rigidly carried out in order to produce by an organized system a reign of terror among the Republicans of the state. And so I'm really impressed that he there was not a lot he could do as an individual person or even as a congressman to reverse what had happened. He had been campaigning during that season. He had tried to stand up to those folks. Um, but he used his position in Congress to talk very, very directly about what had gone on in that election. So if you fast forward to 1895, so that, again, that was 1877. So, so you know, 18 years later in 1895, what the white Democrats of South Carolina are trying to do is kind of cement what they had been working toward since the 1870s, which was basically curtailing African-American political power um, in the state and and also stymieing any efforts of um, dissenting white voters to make coalition with African-American voters. So by the time you get to the 1895 Constitutional Convention, um, Benjamin Tillman, who um, was kind of leading the charge on this politician, South Carolina politician, was overtly saying, we need to call a constitutional convention to once and for all make sure that um, there will be no black voters in the state. And um, that's more or less what they do. And as you said, Robert Smalls, and there were several other black delegates to that convention, they objected pub publicly, they objected strenuously, um, but they were obviously in the tiny minority at that point. Mm. Michael, is there anything you want to add to what he was describing as Robert Small's career in, in the U.S. Congress? He served in the 44th, 45th, 47th, 48th, and actually the 49th Congresses. And if there's any insight you can share, too, into his reaction in seeing, you know, the progress made in 1868 to the second constitutional convention where he declined to sign the Constitution, did it did it make him lose hope in the project of Reconstruction, or, or what was his reaction? Well, I, I can only speculate and and guess that he was just completely heartbroken. I mean, you know, here's a man who had committed effectively his his adult life to making you know his state, his community, uh, a better, more representative place. And all the work that he had done was, you know, systematically being dismantled, as, as Kate said. So, um, you know, I think 
Robert could see the sort of the handwriting on the wall, he, he was able to stay in office longer than most African-Americans because Beaufort was such a heavily African-American uh, populated sort of area. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think it, it was clear what was happening, what was coming. And, um, you know, he held on for as long as he could, which was, as I said, longer than most. And can you just tell us a little bit about the end of his life when he passed away and just a little bit about that context? Yeah, Robert died um, in 1915. He, even after he um, effectively was was put out of office, um, you know, because of, uh, of the rise of Jim Crow, I think his national acclaim was such that the president at the time made him collector of customs of for Beaufort. And, um, and so, you know, he remained sort of in service through the la- you know, latter years of his life. He, uh, you know, he, you know, got diabetes and, um, you know, became infirmed and, and passed in 1915, but lived obviously a, a life, uh, of impact, of meaning, of consequence. He saw, enormous changes across the span of his life. Um, you know, it's interesting because I grew up with Robert Small's grandchildren. My grandmother was Robert Small's granddaughter. And, um, you know, she was born in 1897. He died in 1915. So the first 18 years of her life or so, she lived with him in Beaufort. And so I would hear direct stories about him and in various corners or, you know, various, you know, he's known in different ways. In some places he's known as General Smalls, others congressmen. Well, you know, we grew up, I grew up sort of hearing and knowing about grandpa. And so, you know, would hear that he was just a warm and loving man. And, uh, you know, he had an enormous commitment to his, his family and, um, and, and was one who had a sense of humor and, um, you know, so, um, so it's, it's interesting in retrospect to try to speculate, you know, about some of these things. I also had the benefit, um, Robert's daughter, Elizabeth lived a long, long life. She was, um, on the boat with Robert on May 13th, 1862, but she ended up passing, she lived until 1959. And so she lived the last 22 years of her life with my mother, who was growing up and and with my grandparents. And so again, um, my mother would sit at her knee and listen to stories about Robert Smalls, about her service. She was his uh, secretary in Washington. And, you know, and so and so I have a lot of those stories. And even further, you know, when I think about the Civil War itself, when I think about some of Robert Small's contemporaries, Abraham Lincoln, for example, you know, it, it's it sometimes is not particularly tangible because it was just so long ago. But when I think about Robert himself, that history becomes much more um, sort of accessible in part because um, because I heard these stories directly from people who had firsthand kind of experience with him. When I go visit my mother, for example, in Florida now, I sleep in my great-grandmother's bed, Robert's daughter's bed, the bed that my grandmother was born in on 1897 and all of her siblings. Um, So, um, 
you know, history can be a fleeting kind of a thing. And, and it becomes certainly in our family becomes more difficult with each passing generation to pass along the stories. You know, I, I as much as I um, have studied his life and and try to remember the stories that have, have been passed down to me, you know, I, I am not as in touch with those stories as my mother, as my grandmother. And so, you know, with each passing generation, it is more and more challenging, more and more difficult to pass along these stories as the stories, you know, become older and 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 um, more a part of sort of oral history than experience. And uh, but, uh, you know, we are doing what we can. And, um, you know, I have a little 12 year old named Robert, by the way. And uh, and he he seems to be the next generation who will uh, will be the beacon of the story in our family. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing those stories and for helping us get to know Robert Smalls just as an historical figure, but as a member of your family. Kate, when you conducted the National Park Service theme study, you and your co-author Greg concluded that Beaufort would be a great spot for a reconstruction memorial. Was it because of of the life and and the legacy of Robert Smalls? Was there anything else that was significant about Buford in particular that you learned during your conducting of the study? Um, Well, Robert Smalls certainly had something to do with it, but he was not the only um, kind of aspect of Buford's history that made that area rise to kind of the top when we did our survey. So one of the other ways of thinking about the context, going back to the beginning of our conversation, the context for Robert Smalls' escape on the planter was that from very early in the war, from November of 1861, um, United States Naval Forces had occupied uh, the Beaufort area. They had come into Port Royal Sound and um, the many of the plantation owners, most of them fled the area. Some tried to take as many of their um, slaves with them as they could, but many enslaved people remained behind. And so when uh, the U.S. forces came ashore, there were these kind of plantations that had been abandoned by uh, by the white owners. And um, the quickly, and this was uh, huge news in the Northern press, this was a military victory, but also an opportunity. Uh, it was a little bit ironic that here, they, here was the United States occupying the coast of South Carolina, which had been, of course, the first um, state to the state that led the charge to secede from the Union in the first place. So um, pretty quickly came uh, northern people interested in establishing schools, um, establishing, uh, reestablishing kind of the production of rice and cotton, but on a free labor basis. Um, And this was a a set of uh, a kind of set of policies and and people and practices that are called the the Port Royal Experiment. Um, People um, kind of coming down there and seeing uh, this area as a place to experiment with what freedom could look like. And in the meantime, if you think about Robert Smalls or or the many, many, many people who were enslaved on the South Carolina Sea Islands, they too were ready for an experiment in freedom, um, wanted education, wanted to uh, volunteer for the war effort and so on. And so um, because of that rich and sort of really remarkable history, starting with emancipation at the very beginning of the war, um, Beaufort, the Beaufort area has a, 
a kind of, well, it's not only because of the history, but it also happens to be because there are quite a number of really well-preserved buildings. Um, and that's something that's important for the National Park Service is that you have to have events not only of national significance, but also buildings still standing um, more or less in their original form that can help tell that story. And so one of the sites that's included in the National Monument is uh, what's called the Penn Center, but it was the site of one of these very early schools for freed people. It started in a plantation house, then moved to Brick Baptist Church, which was a Baptist church that was built in the 1850s and is still standing and is part of the National Monument. And then after that, the school, which was run by two Quaker women from Pennsylvania, um, was moved across the road and became uh, an educational institution that's called Penn Center. Um, and then the town of Beaufort has a remarkable number of still standing buildings from the era where um, very interesting and important things transpired. There was a Freedmen's Bureau outpost. Um, there is Robert Smalls's house where he was born and the house that he later purchased um, through tax sale from the government, um, which had been the his owner's house originally. And so that house is still there. Um, the other thing that's part of the National Monument is an area where uh, Cap Camp Saxton was, which was a kind of military camp, um, partly famous because it's where the first regiment of um, US colored troops from South Carolina was recruited. And also it was the site of a kind of amazing and celebratory reading of the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. And so those are all stories that come from the, the, civil, the civil war years and what we would consider the beginning of Reconstruction. But as we've been talking about um, throughout this program, the area had um, an African-American majority throughout the period and was a real center of African-American political power, partly because of Robert Smalls's kind of preeminent role. And so during the course of the post-Civil War years, you see a lot of really interesting um, Black politics and um, qu questions about the reorganization of labor, African-Americans um, holding on to land, small parcels of land, which is kind of unusual uh, across the South. And so it turns out to be, you know, broadly speaking, a really um, interesting place to memorialize Reconstruction. Can I, can I jump in with a, a quick comment? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that's uh, really interesting to me and to sort of our family history, Kate mentioned the Battle of Port Royal in November of 1861, where the Union came in and occupied that Port Royal sort of low country area included in that among those who were freed was Robert Small's mother, Lydia. And Robert, of course, had been sent up many years earlier and was in Charleston further north. And, and again, for somebody, Robert, who, you know, had freedom on his mind, was trying to figure out how to be free, how to ensure that no one would tear his wife and children away from him to, to also then learn that his mother was free, um, effectively free, not legally free, perhaps, but effectively free a little bit further south. I, I only can imagine that that, you know, caused him to, to sort of hasten his efforts to try to figure out his own freedom. Well, it's so interesting. Michael, before I ask for some additional concluding thoughts about Robert Smalls, I'm wondering if there's anything you 
would like to say about the work of your institution, the International African American Museum, which is also in South Carolina? And how do you see your institution sort of telling these kinds of stories and the story of the Civil War and Reconstruction in our history? Yeah, thank you for asking. Yeah, we, we have a really unique opportunity in that we are building an African American history museum largely on the spot where that history began. We're, we're building, the his, building the museum on what was called Gadsden's Wharf. It was the largest wharf in the colonies, and it became the place where more enslaved Africans landed and were sold throughout the, than any other place in the country throughout the entire uh, history of, uh, of the, the slave trade. Um, uh, they say that a little more than 48%, almost half of all the enslaved Africans came through Charleston, and of the total, about 40% landed on the spot of our museum. So it really is a, a sacred place. It's a, it's a very powerful place if you understand the history um, of what, what happened there. And so we're building this museum. We hope to tell both the broad stories of African-American history to elevate stories like Robert Smalls. And there are so many that just have been muted over the generations, just haven't gotten to be a part of the sort of the narrative of the American historical sort of story. And, uh, and so we are working hard to break ground later this year and uh, to open two years after that. And it promises to be a very special dynamic place. That sounds great. I can't wait to visit once it's built. Yeah. Great. So, Kate, to wrap up this really interesting and engaging conversation, I just want to ask for your concluding thoughts about Robert Smalls. What, what would you say is the most important thing for Americans to know about his legacy? And what is his greater role in the Reconstruction and post-Reconstruction period? Well, that's a that's a good question. I mean, he's so he's. I think if if people can grasp this Robert Smalls's story from beginning to end of his life, they can really come to understand a lot about this uh, important and really misunderstood period in American history. Um, I teach this period a lot as a college professor, and it's there's a lot of different dynamics that make it I think difficult for people to um, understand, and one of them is the question of, well, why is Reconstruction so important if it only went on to kind of fail or, or you know, that all of these things that were promised about remaking the nation on a footing of equality um, didn't work out. And by the end of the 19th century, you have this rising period of Jim Crow that then people had to fight against in the 1950s and 60s. And indeed, you know, people continue to fight against um, continuing forms of racism and uh, racial discrimination. And um, I think Robert Smalls's life really illuminates why this period matters and shouldn't just be glossed over as, oh, more of the same. And that's because of the kinds of um, struggles that were possible, the kinds of struggles that he engaged in, um, and also the the things that he was up against and he and his allies were up against. So, you know, it wasn't easy for um, white Southerners like Benjamin Tillman or Wade Hampton to bring about the order that they wanted to see happen. Um, they had to fight for what they were trying to get. And yes, it's, you know, it's 
unfortunate that they, it's tragic, it's horrendous that they um, won out for a period of time. But we can really see in the contours of Robert Smalls's life, um, the significance of the kind of resistance that he engaged in, um, the ongoing kind of ways that many, many Americans have continued to advocate for um, greater forms of equality, for democratic political participation, for the United States to really deliver on its promises of um, that all people are created equal. And Robert Smalls's life really kind of embodies uh, what that effort can look like in, in the real world. Michael, same question to you. What do you think is the most important thing for Americans to know about Robert Smalls' legacy? And, you know, on a, on a more personal level, what does his legacy mean to you and your family? Um, you know, I think the first question broadly, um, you know, I think what has impressed me most about Robert Smalls and his life and and uh, his endeavors really was the audacity that he showed in taking a dream that he had really no reasonable um, sort of expectation of being able to make true and you know that 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 dream being the the dream of freedom and and snatching it away in his own hands taking his own life in his hands and and making it happen you know when he and his family and the crew and their families got on that boat it was a do or die proposition they loaded the bottom of the boat with dynamite and they all pledged that you know if they got caught they would dynamite the boat they knew that if they were caught that they would not only be killed but probably in a particularly violent manner as a example to others. And so, you know, it's one thing to know how to sail past all these forts and deliver the appropriate signals to get to pass and all that. But to do that under the, you know, the real threat of imminent death, I think is something that is, uh, is really admirable to have that kind of, you know, you mentioned the word moxie before to have that moxie, to have that that audacity to take your life into your hands and to, uh, you know, to, to create your reality, I think is, is profound. And, and for me, that, that, that is really how I have engaged with the story. There are a lot of things that I am proud about. I, I, I think it is really noteworthy that he, um, you know, did all the things that he did, that he fought in 18 battles, that he became the first African-American to command a United States naval vessel, was the first, was the most senior African-American to serve in the Union Army throughout the Civil War, that he was able to convince Lincoln to accept former enslaved men into the Union Army. And some historians suggested that extra influx of 100, 200,000 men really was meaningful in the the result that that occurred. I mean, you know, the fact that he founded the Republican Party in South Carolina, which, of course, in the day was the party of Lincoln, the Progressive Party. The fact that um, he created the legislation for the public school system there. Um, the fact that he, you know, effectively brought home the bacon, so to speak, and was able to create Paris Island which to this day um, exists as a marine training facility. Um, th there's so many things that he did 
um, and in contributing to trying to, you know, move this country forward during a time that desperately, you know, needed that kind of evolution. And, um, and so, you know, for me, first of all, I would, I, there's absolutely no way I would be doing what I am doing now and leading the effort to build a museum, an African-American history museum, had I not had this connection to, to history and to Robert Small specifically, because that has been a very important part of this journey for me. But then also as a business person, you know, th there are many times when we all as human beings face risk and face doubt and the knowledge that somewhere in there, you know, is some, uh, some DNA, some, some of the same blood that flowed through the veins that Robert Smalls um, had that, that, you know, serves to, you know, sort of stiffen my backbone and to give me a bit of confidence that um, has been very meaningful. And so in a, in a real way, when I think about the opportunity that we have in building the International African American Museum, in the same way that I have been fortified, that I have been strengthened by my connection to history, I want to extend that same, you know, benefit to others. Um, it, it is, you know, I read a statistic once that said that of all the people that the average American school child learns about from K through 12, 95% are white men. And so if that's who you're learning about in school and, you know, kids grow up, then effectively they're getting the message that if you're a part of that group, then you can do anything because anything that's really a value that's being taught in the schools has been done by people like that. But if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, if you're somehow differently abled, if you're an immigrant of some kind, then it can really call into question, you know, your place in the society and therefore maybe the, uh, you know, what you can reasonably aspire to achieve. And so creating this museum, a place where all Americans, I believe, will resonate with the human stories there, but where in particular young African-Americans will look on the walls and see people who look just like them and therefore hopefully get the message that people of African-American descent, people just like them, have done great things in building this nation and, and thereby, therefore, they can too. So um, it's, 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 it's had a profound influence in me, it, you know, being connected to Robert Smalls is one of my earliest and most pervasive um, sort of memories throughout my life, growing up with his grandchildren, as I mentioned, hearing about it. Um, and so, you know, it's, a, it's an honor, it's a blessing to be able to try to extend a similar kind of experience to others. Michael and Kate, thank you so much for your amazing work on this topic and for joining me today to discuss the crucial and inspiring story of Robert Smalls. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Madison Poulter and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Hannah Zinker. We the People listeners, if you like this podcast, rate us on iTunes, tell your friends, and write to us at podcast at constitutioncenter.org. Finally, the Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. 
We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Lana Ulrich. Thank you.